Holy Father, we thank you for divine scripture. We thank you, Lord, for these 2,000 years that have bludgeoned the lives of many in pursuit to declaring this truth, the pursuit to get the Bible into the layperson's hands. We are grateful for those men that have gone before us and that we sit here today with personal owned Bibles, personally owned, that that, uh, oftentimes I think we take for granted. But Lord, may we not help us this morning to understand something more of your will for our lives as a justified and sanctified people, being sanctified um, until the day you take us home to glory. For these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has, has provided us with, with the d- divine dynamics of sovereign grace in salvation. I mean, 11 chapters um, that serve really as the preface to this, the 12th chapter that we've been in for, just a, for a number of weeks now. And, you know, Paul, obviously, he wants his readers to know that the gospel isn't merely a matter of cognition. It's not merely a matter of simply knowing facts. Knowledge is important. But salvation is also a matter of demonstration. Truth to be lived out through a people who have been regenerated, that is, born again from above. They have been redeemed, they're renewed, they're being renewed, being continually renewed as adopted heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And truly, a truly renewed mind leads to renewed motion. Right? Renewed living. True saving faith is is more than intellectual agreement to the truth of Christ and his gospel. Amen? You know, the, the reformers knew this. So the reformers went ahead and, and they made a distinction between true and said faith. And, and the reformers came up with some terms. They said that saving faith has three components. And these are three Latin terms. And that is notitia, fiducia, and a census. That is to say that notitia, or notitia is knowledge. Notitia, knowledge, you you have to know, amen? Faith comes from hearing the words of Christ, Romans 10. One must know, and knowing comes by way of hearing. We know. And then you have fiducia, which means to trust in, to believe in what you know. You have to believe, very simple. We have to know, we have to believe it, but third and this is most important, really, uh, is, was a census, that is, assent, meaning to commit to, to, to follow, to invest your life in the thing that you know to be true, and that thing you know to be true you believe in, and you therefore commit yourself in obedience to that truth. A census. So in saving us by way of divine sovereign grace, the Lord Jesus, he wants all of us. All of you. The all of who you are. 
Every facet of who, who you are. He wants our heart. He wants our bodies. He wants, in other words, the totality of our lives. And, and he wants us to be driven by his promises as recipients of grace. Right? Chapter 12 is, therefore, as recipients of all this divine sovereign grace, therefore now live your lives as a sacrifice unto him, living sacrifices. So our thinking, which is prone to error, must regularly be renewed by objectivity, the word of God. So Paul's appeal of verse 1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is carried out by way of a renewed mind. That is a mind that's no longer conformed by the world, to the world, or to the world by the world, but a mind that is transformed, a mind that is being transformed on a day-to-day basis. That's called daily reformation. The foundational reality of which is that it's not about you. It's certainly not about me. It's not even about us. It is about the glory of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's who it's about. So in verses 3 through 8, we see and we learn that we are to maintain a proper estimate about ourselves. Along with a realistic perspective about what it means to live and function as the body, big figure eight, as the body of Jesus Christ. We are his body. Recognizing the fact that the gifts he distributes are according to his sovereign will, and they're given not for the sake of drawing attention to ourselves, but for the sake of building one another up. You are gifted. You're spiritually gifted by God the Holy Spirit somehow, some way. Some have more gifts than others, but they're not for you. They're for service one to another. Okay, this he has made clear. In verse 9 and following, we're, we're, we're confronted by a series of divine imperatives uh, of genuine Christian love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Here's one, outdo one another in showing honor. (laughs) There's a challenge. Now, this kind of love is not something that we are capable of creating in or initiating in and of ourselves. Amen? These are not commands that can be simply carried out by any man or woman on the street. It's impossible. In other words, Paul is not assembling for us a a, a list of ethical standards saying to any and all, hey, just pull up the bootstraps, get out there and be religious in order to commend yourselves to God. He's definitely not saying that. There's a context here. Paul is addressing those who are referred to as saints. Remember chapter 1? Verse 7. Saints, hagios, sanctified ones, those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, those who are set apart according to his sovereign grace. So sainthood is not a matter of hierarchy, right? It's not a hierarchy of super pious people canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. There's no hierarchy of believers in the body of Christ. Everyone stands on equal ground, justified, atoned for, by way of the blood of Jesus Christ alone, in whom we trust and believe by faith alone. There are no saints above or, or, uh, above or below other saints. 
we stand positionally equal in Christ, God doesn't canonize anybody. So sainthood has to do with position, not condition. Amen? In Romans 6 and verse 17, the saints, they're referred to as those who are no longer slaves of sin, but are now slaves of righteousness. We're owned. You're owned and you are possessed, by the way. Did you know that? And that is why a Christian can't be possessed by a demon, because you're already possessed. (laughs) Owned by the Holy Spirit. There's no division there. He who is in us is greater than he that's in the world. So we are actually, beloved, as children of God, as saints, we are endowed by the very Spirit of God. Remember chapter 5 and verse 5? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, without whom, beloved, such commands and manner of living would be unattainable, impossible. Oh, sure, people can live good lives and do good stuff. But not for the glory of God, they can't. No. It's by the power of God alone and the presence of the Holy Spirit within for the glory of God alone that anyone does good in the name of Jesus Christ. So, when the Apostle Paul calls us to do these things, bear in mind, beloved, that that he himself well understands that it is only according to God's grace alone, operative in us, the Holy Spirit, that enables us to live this way. Verse 10, Therefore we can outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, now that's a command with a warning to resist the temptation of you know, running to the head of the parade to gain recognition. Resist the temptation of that place of prominence, he's saying. Verse 11, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. In other words, he says, don't be lazy as a Christian. Don't be a lazy Christian, but be fervent. Serve the Lord. So that, Notice, we can also, verse 12, rejoice in hope. We can actually rejoice in the hope of what? Getting saved? No, in the hope of glory because we are saved. That's the hope. The hope is the finish line. And that we can be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Followed by verses 13, 15, and 16, where we read the exhortations of being hospitable, of being sympathetic, of being harmonious, harmony within the body, and humility within the body. Only by the power of the Spirit. Do not, verse 16, be haughty then, right? But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's one. Never be conceited in your own intellect. A warning against the ruthless ambition of a mind fixed on self-esteem and self-exaltation. This is what we're prone to as fallen human beings, amen? Yet by the power of the Spirit, we're able, enabled to live like this. Now in all these things, he says, how we think, how we serve, how we love, how we contribute to the body... I believe, personally, is all connected to verse 11, which we looked at for a couple weeks. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Which enables us to go back to verse 1 and really be the living sacrifice that he calls us to be. Well, now we turn our attention to verses 17 to 21, where we find Paul exhorting the church in Rome to behave Christ-like 
when they find themselves on the receiving end of persecution. Okay, this is how we operate within the church, with the friends of God. How do we deal with those who are foes, enemies, for which we once were? (laughs) This is tough stuff. Paul already stated back in verse 14, you remember that the command for Christians to to love others extends beyond the boundaries of the church. Verse 14, he said, bless those who what? Persecute Persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And now in verses 17 to 21, he's going to flesh that out. He's going to flesh the meaning of that out. Clear understanding. So Paul's point, beloved, is the same. A genuine spirit-empowered love manifests itself by way of action. And again, it's not in and of ourselves, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, when civil society loses any propensity towards doing that which is right, that is, within the moral framework of the Creator, which, by the way, is in them, it's within them, by way of general revelation, by way of conscience, Romans 1 and 2, okay, when society continues to suppress the truth, of the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness, it will inevitably lead to the persecution of those who are gods through Christ Jesus, somehow, some way. And he's telling us, don't respond to it with a spirit of anarchy. Don't relate to it or don't advocate anarchy. We don't take the law into our own hands. That's what he's saying. This is where he's going. And he'll flow right into chapter 13 with this manner of thinking. So in other words, friends, we're not called to get even. We're not called to stir up civil insurrection. Paul knows that our relationship to the world is fundamental to our witness to the world. Are you with me? So he says here, a Christian is to respond to persecution by demonstrating the love of Christ to the persecutor Not hatred for hatred, and not revengeful practices. This is no doubt drawn from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, on the Sermon on the Mount, where he said in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, we read, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now again, it's important that we remember the first century context in which Paul writes, in the situation faced by the believers in the early church. That's where we always go. Remember, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It was written to the church of first century Rome. That's who this letter was written to. And then we glean from this and how we apply this to our lives. Now, Christians were increasingly being persecuted and ostracized from Roman society. Verse 14, he says, look, don't curse those who persecute you. Is that reasonable? That's reasonable to me. And as I said last week, the next part is not reasonable at all. Don't curse them, okay. But bless them? Bless those who persecute me. See, when we think of blessing, we think of material things, right? Oh, bless them with a good house and a nice car, or, you know, or whatever, good fortune. In Jewish thinking, To bless is the blessing of God that they would come to know. Wow is right, brother. 
So these first century believers, not unlike us, would naturally think like this. Hey, since they're persecuting me because I'm a Christian, that means they're persecuting my Lord Jesus because they're persecuting his gospel. So curse them, God. And, and you know what? As a matter of fact, I curse you in the name of God. <laughs> that's, that's us. That's how we think. Blessing often meant wishing the very best, which means ultimately that they would come to know this God. Let's not forget who's writing this epistle. The Apostle Paul, a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus. Who what? Who at one time, the scripture says, was ravaging the church. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's who the author is, man. (laughs) The persecutor. Who would become the persecuted one. And he's instructing these Christians how to live in the face of persecution, which would increase greatly in the years to come. And he, he, he provides a number of just straightforward imperatives, straightforward commands. We've already read all the indicatives, beloved, all of the facts of who we are and what he's done in the first 11 chapters, and he's just continuing the flow. Therefore, this now is how we shall live. Not possible in your own strength. Keep that in mind. So these are very naturally understood commands. On the surface, anyone can read this and understand it naturally. Witness? Absolutely. But they can only be expressed supernaturally. Did you get that? They can be understood naturally, but they can only be expressed supernaturally. Because the expression of them demands the supernatural attendance of God, the Holy Spirit, who's in you. And he's only in those who've been atoned for, those who believe, those who believe by faith in Christ alone. Because this is not natural to our fallen nature, beloved. Right? Did you not just read through this and think of all the times that you got revenge? Well, you, you can't even count that high. Whether it's in word, in deed, or action, whatever. This is not natural. But retaliation is very natural. It's a very natural human response. One of the first introductions that any child will experience as he walks down the road of life is the feeling of resentment that rises up within him when he or she is wronged. Witness? That is that we instinctively want to pay back where we have been mistreated, where we have been victimized. It's human nature, and it's a very early, early experience of life. You just watch a kid take a toy from another kid. It's there. You don't have to teach them that, right? You do not have to teach children to sin. It's innate. The commands of this scripture, they're not innate until the Holy Spirit takes residence. Is a grade school kid. I remember we moved from one school, one neighborhood to another, so we had to change schools, and I go into this new grade school. There's this kid named Jeff Lucy. Jeff Lucy and his little gang. And this chap, trying to make a name for himself, you know, start picking on me, jumping me, 
hiding out in the bushes, jumping me on my way home. Got the best of me one day and hit me in the temple. And my temple was, you know, you could die from getting punched in the temple, but it puffed out. It was swollen for weeks. I wanted revenge. And I would seek out revenge. So we used to play neighborhood football, full pads and all, back in grade school. And we didn't invite Jeff Lucy, but Jeff Lucy was down the street yelling, you know, mouthing me. So I went down there with my helmet in hand and stood there, and I decided to smack him up alongside the head with my football helmet. In revenge for my puffed-up temple, his ear started to bleed, and he fell down and crying, and two weeks passed, and I'm walking home from school, and he's hiding in the bushes, and he jumps out. I said, what do you want, Lucy? He said, you know what I want, leader. What? Revenge. That's a direct quote. So we went at it again, and off we go again and again for months, throwing blows, throwing accusations, beating one another up, and then we became best friends. <laughs> best friends, man. I used to sleep at his house. He'd sleep at my house. and yeah, We actually started a ministry before we were saved. It was beating up bullies. <laughs> we go get revenge for other people who couldn't defend themselves. It's innate. It's there. Okay, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he he writes, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to, to, to everyone. So this obligation as a Christian challenges that innate tendency to retaliate. Whether it's the exchange of words, whether it's fisticuffs, or or whether it leads to the extreme of life for life. The Hatfields and McCoys, however long that feud was, 15 people died. 15 people, I think it was 10 or 12 years, 15 people died. So this exhortation against retaliation, this is not novel, by the way, to New Testament teaching. This is not, you know, New Testament teaching that came when this Messiah came on scene. <clears throat> because it seems as though the teaching of Jesus is, is, is drawing a striking contrast to the Spirit and the teaching of the Old Testament. Because here's where people made the mistake. They would read the law, of Exodus for instance, verse 23 of chapter 21. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That was a prescription, no doubt, but not for personal retaliation. That was a prescription meant for judges and magistrates' court that that they were the ones called by God to determine just punishment. We see it carried out in the New Testament as well when we get to chapter 13. They do not bear the sword in vain. You take a man's life, your life shall be taken. But it was also an act of mercy. Because if someone robs your house, what do you want them to be? Dead. (laughs) Steal your car, kill him. Right? It was never meant for private individuals to decide the kind of penalty to be meted out. This is a formula for exact justice proportionate to the crime committed for the land of Israel, for the people of Israel. 
adopted by magistrates and leaders of nations, as we'll see, as I said, in chapter 13. So this is a formula for public justice. This isn't a personal recipe for, for retaliation. Now, over the passage of time, tradition took over, and the misuse of this text was embraced by persons of Jesus' day, who, where they would say, I have a right for an eye for an eye. I have a right for a tooth for a tooth, and a hand for a hand, and so on. I must and I will take action. And this is the reason where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount six times says what? You have heard that it was said of those of old, but I say to you. Let me tell you how you've jacked up my law. You've heard that it was said, but I say. In other words, I'm telling you what this really means by what this says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. He's not changing the law. He's clarifying the law. So then, in line line with the theme of chapter 12, context of chapter 12, our thinking, which naturally, again, is retaliatory, is to think differently in response to the power of God to those who do us evil. And it can only be done by the power of God and the wisdom of the Word of God. Spirit and Word work like this. Amen? The Spirit of truth. So this, again, takes the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Very, very important. Now, Scripture, along with the Spirit, serves to correct both our naive reasonings, our ignorance, our naive reasonings, as well as our faulty theoretical interpretations of life. Are you with me? This is what Scripture does. We have faulty, naive reasonings with regard to how life should be. Now, oftentimes we'll attempt to find biblical support to support our faulty presuppositions of life. Amen? I I see it happen all the time. People have this ideal, I believe in this and I believe in that. I say, well, that's not even biblical. So they find some some text out of context and they attempt to press it into the scripture saying, see, it's right there. I think of Peter who asked Jesus, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What, up to seven times? And he no doubt thought he was being generous because the rabbis taught that three times was very generous because they took a text out of context. They would cite Amos, chapter 1. Four, five, six verses there. Which read, For three transgressions and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So we see there God's judgment through the prophet Amos, to these foreign nations for three transgressions of Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Moab, and even for Israel. And for four, I will not revoke that punishment. Now, that was a poetic expression that introduces the judgment of God on the surrounding nations of Israel. And that eventually Israel themselves would suffer God's judgment for falling prey to the ways of the nations. Are you with me? So this was their faulty premise that they constructed a doctrine out of. You with me now? They constructed a doctrine out of something. That's like trying to build a doctrine out of narrative. Like all the supernatural events that happened in Acts, people build a doctrine out of that. That's a big biblical no-no. So they construct this doctrine. So you can imagine, like in our day, people try to build a doctrine out of something, they press it into the text, then they run to Google. 
to find 50 people who will agree with their false presupposition. So imagine Peter saying this, thinking about Amos, and then he runs and he Googles. And what does he find? Probably at least 50 scribes in Jerusalem who have you know, published catalog articles with the same false presupposition. And then he goes, see, it's right there. This kind of thing happens all the time. But when the word is rightly divided, we understand things in their proper context. Amen? So here's Jesus, who's the logos, the word, corrects this false conjecture, and he says in Luke 17.3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns seven times saying, I repent, you must what? Forgive him. And also he went on to say 70 times seven, which means an innumerable amount of times. In other words, what's the condition here in that text? If he repents, what? Forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. All right, back to Romans, verse 17. Repay. No one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, he's saying that in our personal relationships with the world, do those good things that are recognized as being good. Those things that even pagans will recognize, pagans, unbelievers, that will recognize as good. Give thought to it. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, this word honorable is translated in other places as good or, or as virtuous. Okay? The word is kalos. Not that that's a big deal, but just to kind of follow what I'm saying, we'll see a distinction between two words. This word, kalos, honorable, it means an in, in outward expression of good. Okay? It's outward. An attractive exterior goodness. That's recognizable to the observer. He says, think about doing things that are honorable. Now, the other word describing good or honorable is agathos, which refers to an inward or intrinsic goodness. Okay? Now, there's a connection here. So, when this outward expression, this outward goodness, conforms to the inward goodness, then that expression, which, which is of a Christian provides an honest description of the person who's exercising the good. Are you with me? It's recognizable even to the unbeliever. But if the Christian, someone saved, if someone is saved, he's a true Christian, she's a true Christian, carries an outward expression that's patterned after the age, that's patterned after this world, then that expression is not representing what he or she truly is. A child of God who inwardly has the Holy Spirit of God. So the outward expression is to conform to the inward life of God the Holy Spirit who's in us. That then is an honest expression of who he or she is. A redeemed sinner saved by grace. A Christian. Now, when a Christian doesn't 
he's given a, a dishonest expression of who he or she truly is. Are you with me? It doesn't make him now no longer a Christian. It's just a, a dishonest expression of who he or she truly is in Christ. Let me give you an example of this. I know a Christian who has adopted a faulty view of, of sloppy sanctification, this whole view of kind of just floating around, disengaged with the Word and the Spirit, just let go and let God, and you know, God's just going to pass a wand over me, all of a sudden, sanctify me, change me. I think there's a little antinomianism in there, you know, anti-law, to be against the law or the teachings of God and so on. He, he said this about a neighbor, a literal neighbor. He goes, look, I hate my neighbor. Like, I hate him. And you know what? There's, there's nothing I can do about it. I hate my neighbor. God's just going to have to change me. Okay, that's true. God's going to have to change him. But what he's not doing is, here, giving thought. Notice, he's not giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of that neighbor by way of the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells him. And the scripture which instructs him. So if you're going to use that excuse, you might as well rip out this page of Romans and just throw it away because you then are not enabled to adhere to what God tells you to do if that's the case. If he tells you, do this, be like this, we express that outwardly by faith according to the inward power and ability, the enablement of God himself. The Holy Spirit. That's why sanctification is an engaged activity. You with me? So, Paul is simply exhorting the Christian to take careful forethought that his manner of life, his outward expression, is conformed to the inward reality of of who he truly is. That is a child of God. An honest representation of a spirit and dwelt believer. Everyone who's saved has the spirit. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit, they're not saved. There's no second blessing. You don't get saved and get the spirit later. Because you can only be born again by the spirit. When he takes residence, you truly say, he never splits. Amen? He never leaves. So he says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, Phillips paraphrases this. The Phillips paraphrase Bible paraphrases it as follows. See that your public behavior is beyond criticism. I, I don't know about you, but I am, I am well aware that my neighbor, my literal neighbors on my street, I've lived there for 18 years. My neighbors know I'm a Christian. And whether they're hostile to the gospel or not, whether they're religiously indifferent, whether they're straight up garden variety pagan, or, or whether they're Muslims, all of whom live on my street, they're watching my life. They're watching my household as they drive by, as they interact. I know this. Make sure you know this. The world has an expectation as to how a Christian carries themselves. Amen? This is what Jesus Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just a life that manifests 
the present reality of God the Holy Spirit in us. That's light that's being shown. Oh, you're all, we're all going to fumble and stumble and bumble, amen? But as we drive back to the cross and back to Christ and keep our eyes affixed on Him, we can walk full of the Spirit to carry these things out. Okay, then verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice, live peaceably with two qualifications. First, if it is possible, inference being, it is not always possible. It's just not. If possible, by the way, this isn't a loophole. (laughs) It's not possible, Lord, because I was just in the flesh that day and I just didn't feel like it. You know, just try your best, and if it's not possible, just let it fly. (laughs) Right? Any impossibility is on the part of the one determined to do evil against us. Because anyone who's determined to persecute us, peaceable living is just simply not possible. Right? Any ongoing conflict, he's saying, should be in spite of us, not because of us. And it will be because of us if, if we're always seeking retaliation. I was a master at retaliation. This is something that God had to... Well, he, he sanctified out of me. 13, 12 years ago, I was w- working to form a, a non-profit to help guys coming out of prison with, with a discipleship program that was actually biblical. Okay, like true biblical discipleship. So, a year and a half of hard work of trying to do this thing, this guy was supposed to be helping me because he was gifted in this area. And he had done it before many times. And I ended up handing over $23,000 to this dude. And after about a year, I'm like, eh, I don't think I'm going to get my money back. I think this guy is like buying high-end cars with this money. He just flipped the script and went crazy. To be honest with you, as a Christian in ministry, I knew where he was. And I got in my vehicle. I was being transparent. And, and, I, and I put on a beanie. And some sunglasses. And I proceeded to drive where I knew him to be. But guess what? By the grace of God, I didn't make it there. Because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who brought to mind what? God doesn't speak to you like this, okay? God speaks like this. What comes into my mind? Romans 12. Holy Spirit, conviction, giving me the power, granting me the ability to literally repent, which means to have a change of mind and to turn around. So I did a U-turn and I went home with my tail between my legs repented, and uh, eight months later, he got 11 years, or eight years in prison. And I'm not the only guy he got. True story of the retaliatory, retaliatory desire of our human nature, overrided by the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit in those who are His. And I I wasn't even thinking about, well, if I do this, I'll get arrested. 
That was beside the point. It was because that it would, it would disobey and grieve God the Holy Spirit. Grace, amen? amen? So I can take no credit, nor do I want any. It's the glory of God. Now, as far as it depends on you, does not mean that Christians are to be a doormat. Amen? Not to be a doormat, but, but, but simply here he's saying we are not to purposefully offend others. That's what he's saying. We're to pursue peace, to offer and hope for peace, especially, especially ultimate peace for those who persecute us. That is reconciliation to God. Because as those who've been reconciled, we are now those who seek to provide reconciliation between God and man by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't do that in your own strength. I didn't want him to go to prison. I wanted to, I wanted to deal with him my way. As a Christian, hello, what does that show you? That shows you through many nights of lost sleep, many nights of lost sleep, I continued to give myself to the the fallen human nature rather than obedience to the Spirit according to the Word of God. But by the grace of God. But by the grace of God, there go I. So this, this pursuit of peace on the other end of this, beloved, is not peace at any price either. All right, are you with me? Now, for some, this is a great weakness because they'll reason anything for a happy life, anything for the sake of keeping the water still, I'll say anything, I'll do anything, I'll believe anything, I'll recite anything, blah, 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 as long as it means peace. I'll coexist with all the people with their bumper stickers of coexisting, and I'll adopt the philosophy and that all genuine beliefs, so long as they're true and genuine, will ultimately lead to God. That's a bunch of nonsense, and that's a cop-out. And if that's you, in love I say, repent of that nonsense, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, repent and come to faith in Christ, because He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, period, end of story. So either way, Repent. Amen. It's a cop-out. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why? Because of the sword of truth, the truth of Jesus Christ divides. So therefore, peace isn't always possible. Because the opposition is to Christ. This doesn't mean that we can ever protect someone. If I walked by and ever saw a woman being raped, don't think for a minute. See, I carry two peacekeepers with me. They're called fists. And in that case, you make peace. Amen, brothers? Because that is not a peaceful situation. You have nothing to do with it. But as you walk by, to know to do right and not to do it becomes sin. So get on in there and take care of business. Make peace. Okay, context, amen, context. 
it also doesn't mean that we can never protect ourselves in seeking legal protection. Paul did this on at least two occasions where there was times in Paul's ministry where he took at least two different routes um, to those who were persecuting him. One time, or on a couple of occasions, he opted to, to declare his Roman citizenship. He was born a Roman citizen, and you couldn't do these things to a Roman citizen. So he pulled the card and said, fellas, hold on a minute. Did you know, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen? And you know how much trouble you all get in if Caesar finds out that you beat a Roman citizen like that? He pulled a trump card. But other times, he took the abuse. And with Paul, it was always whatever was better for the furtherance of the kingdom. So we need to be discerning. Paul isn't giving every little detail about how we relate to persecutors, but he's saying, look, let me give you the big picture. Payback is the Lord's. That's the bottom line here, right? So this vengeance which is the Lord's, he says, don't take, don't avenge yourselves. Notice he says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Notice he uses the word beloved, loved ones. That's a great way to prime the pump. Dear loved ones of the Lord, I'm about to give you a really hard teaching that will totally cut against your flesh. So dear loved ones of Christ, I know your temptation, and I want to bring you to a deeper, richer understanding of this. You're not authorized to take the law into your own hands, ever. Loved ones. (laughs) People who are receiving persecution. This, is, this vengeance of the Lord's definitely has uh, eschatological ramifications. That is, it has ultimate consequences. Because what, is, what does the Bible say in Revelation? Every tear will be wiped away. And all things will be made right. And ultimately, beloved, God will set the record straight. He will settle all accounts, but he will do so righteously. We can't do that. He's going to bring every motive to the bench. Every motive. We don't know motive. We can't see motive. So we're not to be preoccupied in getting even with those who have wronged us. That, that's what he's after here. Um, God judges justly. He judges absolutely righteously. We have not the capacity. We have not the capability. Therefore, revenge is his. And you know what revenge is? You think revenge is bad or good? Revenge is good. We read Deuteronomy. Revenge is really good because the Bible says it's good, but it's only good when it's dealt with by God himself because it's perfect. It's perfect. It's God's place to dispense judgment, not ours. So we must act as follows. Verse 20. Okay, so he says there, never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Citing there, Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. Now, some will read this and they'll think, okay, sounds good enough to me. If I relent, you're telling me that there's coals being heaped up on him, which means his suffering in hell will be even more? Well, then get him, God, and I won't avenge myself. You're probably most likely wrong with that interpretation. But I'm just applying the word. Amen? Probably wrong. This is likely a picture of the burning pangs 
of shame and contrition. Now, some see a connection here with, with an old Egyptian ritual of penitence, where a person would walk around with a pan of hot coals on their head, representing burning coals of shame for something that they did. Okay, and it, it's probably most likely what Paul is saying here, that when, when you're showing unexpected, unmerited kindness will produce this kind of shame. With the hope of reconciliation to God, ultimately. So this burning is not a hope for their damnation. Right? That wouldn't be Christ-like. So it's not, it's not a hope for their damnation, but, but hoping for reconciliation. Ultimately, it would be salvation. Treating them the way we've been treated by God in Christ. Bottom line. Who's deserving of his grace again? Who, who is it again? Deserving of his grace? Anybody? None of us. None of us. You know, we'll say, well, he doesn't deserve that. No, he doesn't. Neither do you. See, I have to remind myself, that guy I wanted to get, he, he does, he, you know what he deserves? He, this is, yes. Yes. That's what you deserve, leader. Oftentimes in our own hearts, we, we reason like the scribe in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, he's seeking to justify himself. Remember, he's saying, well, then who's my neighbor? You know, Lord, tell me who my little inner circle is that I need to be nice to, and then I'll just go from there. And Jesus tells a story. There's an injured man overtaken in a robbery. Injured, hurt, badly. A priest walks by. A Levite walks by. And they do. They just keep on walking. And the Samaritan, the hero of the story, is a despised Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans, and Jesus tells a story and makes the hero a Samaritan. Talk about heaping coals. Luke 10, 36. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. That's how I hear him saying it. I guess the one who showed him mercy. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. End of story, master teacher Jesus. Okay, so finally, verse 21, he gives us a key to defeat the defeat of evil in this world. Verse 21, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with? With good. So Paul is saying that in our, in our personal relationships with the world, the cycle of evil can only be broken by good. That is the supernatural ability of God the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Yielding to Him in these things. We're, in other words, we're not to fight fire with fire. We're not to fight, we're not to duke it out the way the world dukes it out. Whether it's evil deeds, evil thoughts, you know, evil words, true retaliation. When we do that, we've been overcome by evil. Had I made it to the destiny that day 11 years ago, I'd have been overcome by evil. But by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, I overcame evil with the good. And I'm hoping for his salvation in a Zacchaeus-like of conversion. For Zacchaeus, when he was saved, said what? If I've wronged anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold. (laughs) I'm hoping. Yet to see that money back. 
But I can only say, honestly say by the grace of God, I did forgive that guy. He never asked for forgiveness, but I was still able to, to forgive and let it go. That's the grace of God. Because I even preached in that condition in certain places, in front of thousands of people. So there you have her. Okay. I can only do this if, okay, if, verse 14, I, by the power of Christ in me, bless those who persecute me. If I, by the power of Christ in me, verse 17, do not pay evil for evil. If, verse 18, live, I live as far as it depends on me, peaceably with all. And if, verse 19, I do not avenge myself. When I do, by the Spirit of God, I then walk like Jesus. I walk the way of the cross. We walk the way of the cross. So to retaliate in kind is natural. It's very natural. Not to pay evil for evil is divine and supernatural. Right? This is the way Joseph treated his brothers. And I'm closing up now, so don't, don't nod off on me. This is the way Joseph treated his brothers who ridiculed him, who persecuted him, who sold him off into slavery. You remember the story. In return, oh, Joseph got him back. He provided for them. He protected them. He pardoned them. And he promoted them. He overcame evil with good by the power of submission to God. Such was David's attitude towards Saul and his household. Saul, the first king of Israel, who wanted to assassinate David time and time again because of deep envy and jealousy. David, who was the true warrior, he was the stud. Saul was no warrior. David was a warrior. David had many opportune, uh, on many opportune occasions to take him out. But he relented. And then when Saul was taken out of the scene and David took the throne, David in in his power sought out the refugees of Saul's household in order to show what? Kindness to them. Only by the power of God. Only by the... All through redemptive history, we see the power of God, the grace of God. We don't see good people. We see the abounding grace of God who changes people and sustains people in His grace. Gospel grace. From Genesis to Revelation is gospel grace. Paul. Think about Paul. Paul was mistreated by those he thought he knew. They tried to undermine his ministry. They sowed discord. They sowed heresy in the churches that he planted. They turned his, the, the people that God used to convert He used Paul to convert these people, turned those people against him. I've dealt with some bad church leadership people before. And I I would read Paul when those times would come and go, wow, but by the grace of God. Because that's nothing compared to what this brother went through. But you know what he did? He passionately prayed for their conversion, never ceased trying to win them to Christ. Some of them in prayer he turned over to Satan. But kindness, man, passionate. So their ability, our ability in this manner of overcoming evil, beloved, is this. It is otherworldly. 
otherworldly. How do we do this? Well, only supernaturally we know. Number one, it is distinctively, this ability is distinctively derived from the way Jesus reacted to those people who offended him, number one. Number two, it's divinely empowered by the Spirit of truth who Jesus said will guide you in all truth. All the while, looking to Jesus, who? 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2 rather, verse 23 says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who what? Judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, what? Die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. And having been healed, we are now indwelt with and empowered by the Spirit of God to be able to do this. This isn't just, as I said, pull up your bootstraps and get on out there and commend yourselves to God. You're already purchased, amen? So this is what we have to help one another do. Reminding one another of these things when you want to go rip someone's head off. Or put it whatever tender word you like. All of this is only possible through him who loved us to the end. Witness to the end. So, to, to close, like to close, close. <laughs> Romans 12. Romans 12, this chapter, is not a chapter of moralism. This is a chapter of grace. This, is, is, this defines for us God's people who are saved by grace... And because they're saved by grace, they are therefore being what? Shaped by grace. And continuing to be shaped, be and being shaped by grace. Until the day he takes us home. Possible only in the power of God, by the Spirit of God, through the people of God. And that's you. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty Lord and God, we do thank you. We thank you for your word and and we realize with all our hearts that we're incapable of living this way apart from the aid of your Holy Spirit and the divine grace necessary to walk in such a way. So Lord, we ask that you command what you will and, and give us what you command and we pray these things in the mighty name of our King, our Sovereign Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Together all God's people say, Amen. Amen.